Thank you for joining us. Um, thanks, everyone, for joining us. I know it's kind of a strange hour. As I was explaining, I've, due to my own weird travel schedule, I've managed to, like, jerk around Clay so many times that I felt so bad. I just said, like, let's just do it Friday. But we'll see. Maybe this is an experiment. Maybe the live audience will be bigger than I thought on a Friday afternoon. Um, so here we are. Thank you, Clay, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Are you am I correct am I correct in deducing that you're joining us from one of the Dakotas? Is this true? That is correct. I'm in North Dakota. Is so which of the Dakotas has a population of like fifty thousand or basically like, you know, one neighborhood of San Francisco? Is that North Dakota? Uh fifty thousand <laughs> is a bit low, but yeah, North Dakota, I think it has like around seven or eight hundred thousand. I'm in Fargo and it's probably hundred and twenty, hundred and thirty thousand. Wow. Um, so basically, everybody in, you know everybody in the Dakotas, basically, is what you're saying, Clay. I mean, I know probably a lot of people. <laughs> I'm actually looking up. If I had an assistant, they'd be, like, projecting on the screen. 760,000 uh, people in North Dakota, which is roughly the population of San Francisco, basically. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, a little uh, more spread out. How how does one end up in the Dakotas? Was this just like an academic posting, or are you actually from that part of the world? It's academic. I mean, the way things work in the, the academic job market is, I mean, of course, like any job, there's a number of considerations, but a big one is where you can get, where they want to hire someone who does your, your work. And so I'm not from here. In fact, you know, I before moving here, I was in the UK for a couple of years at the University of Southampton, and then we, we did want to move back to the US. And we were, um, we are kind of from the Midwest, from Missouri, and so we we were kind of looking um, largely in, in in the Midwest. We're pretty, you know, a lot of academics are are willing to to go anywhere, and yeah, this is where where I ended up. Cool. Well, so um, you know, you're. Um, your, you know, your name extends beyond just the academy, so to speak, in that you're, you're, you're pretty well followed on Twitter. I think we've been mutual followers for years now, I just realized. And um, I'm, I'm not sure what originally sparked that follow, but I, you've published a number of interesting books, and you forwarded me a couple of interesting posts recently. And what I, what I like about your work, I think, and it's something that you don't often see, is that you mix sort of academic social science rigor and a fearlessness about talking about sort of the metaphysical, about you know, purpose in life. You quoted Viktor Frankl in one of your pieces, like the sort of thing that you typically don't see in the dry academic prose um, in general, right? So is, is there something motivating that? Or is that even a true characterization of your, of your work, Clay? No, I think that's a good, I think that's a, a good characterization. I mean, I am interested in big, abstract, existential questions. And at the same time, I, you know, I wasn't, I didn't want to be a philosopher. I didn't want to go into theology. I mean, I really have an inclination towards, towards, you know, empiricism. And so trying to find a way to thread the needle between doing behavioral science um, while being able to study the topics that I think are cool um, was, was really the guiding motivation. Okay, now I have to ask, just cut to the chase, Clay, which is not unusual on poor requests, of asking a potentially personal question, which you're free to not answer, obviously. But I, I find that typically people who are so fascinated by the existential questions themselves are either religious or come from a religious background. Is, is that true in your case? Yeah, um, great observation. So I was actually born in, in West Africa. My parents were missionaries. And... Wow. 
you know, so I come from, from, from that background and I grew up in a very, a very, a very loving and supportive, a great, a great um, Christian family. And, you know, that was the front. And I, and after moving back to the U S when I was six, you know, lived in, in Southwest Missouri. Um, and then it really wasn't until I got to college that I started to, you know, think beyond just, you know, kind of my, my more conservative Christian upbringing. And again, I don't have any, it's not a, a, a criticism by any means, but then I started to kind of think about um, like bigger questions, you know, more philosophical ideas. And, you know, that's when I, I entered the world, you know, the more, I guess, for lack of a better term, secular <laughs> world. But right. I think my background was interesting because I think it, it has helped me see a lot of spiritual aspects of what people believe to be um, secular and, and rational life. Yeah, I mean, I, I again, I think there's something about being raised religious, even if uh, you weren't raised necessarily to the tune of being the child of missionaries, that I think it makes you comfortable with that that level of abstract metaphysical thought. And I think most secular people would just sort of recoil from it. It just makes me think, I, I interviewed, I don't know if you're familiar with her work, a biologist from Texas called um, Catherine Page Harden. She wrote this book, The Genetic Lottery, that got oh, a fair yeah, bit of it. Yeah. yeah, got a fair bit of attention because she's kind of a, a lefty progressive, but she's making the shocking statement that, oh, by the way, genetics are real, <laughs> which is something the left <laughs> needs to be reminded of occasionally. It's not actually this endlessly malleable blank slate that society can just mold. And she was also raised... Well, I don't know if you were raised evangelical, but she was raised very Christian evangelical, and she's not an evangelical now. And in fact, she admitted to flirting with Reformed Judaism, which is kind of interesting. But in any case, it, it made her, in her book, Beyond the Biology Work, she talked a lot about the morality of sort of liberalism. And, and again, in a way that struck me as someone who was, um, you know, maybe read the Bible occasionally in their life, which I think is a good thing. <laughs> but um, but let's just uh, get to your work then. So you, you sent me a few things that you worked on, and I started reading, and unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to finish it or, to be honest, even make a serious dent in it by the show. But you, you've written a book about, you know, the existential nature of humans and sort of man's search for meaning, once again, to quote Frankel's uh, phrase. And that seems to infuse a lot of your recent work, which was about patriotism and nostalgia. Do you want to talk about how, how, you, how you wrote about that or even just summarize the, the book slightly for, for listeners? Um, so the, uh, are you talking about the, the supernatural book? Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So it was really guided by this idea of well, I, let me let me back up a little bit. The first thing that interested me is as a as a data scientist, I've, I'm always fascinated by by trends, by looking at large you know data trends where when everyone says something's going in one direction, and then trying to be a little bit of a, you know do some detective work to dig a little bit deeper and say is, is, is that the full story? So the trend I'm referring to is the decline in religion. In, in the United States and the Western world more broadly. So almost any metric you look look at indicates that religions have declined, whether it's church attendance, the importance of, of, of faith to people's lives, you know, self-reported importance of faith to people's lives, the amount of money they give to um, religious groups, and so forth. Everything's in decline, right? And so that was the starting point. And as somebody who studies human motivation and cognition, I you know, and, and does take more of a, you know, less of a, you know, when you're talking about genetics, it's, you know, it's a good connection because I'm someone who take, takes more of that approach and less of like a, a blank slate approach. My, my, my starting question was, if humans have certain natural inclinations and our brain hasn't really changed, it, um, then why 
why this decline in religion? And is it really reflecting just a, you know, just a social and cultural shift? Or is there something really changing about, about the human condition? So that, so the, the book is an attempt to investigate, A, why people are religious to begin with, what is the underlying motivation and, and the cognitive and motivational processes involved, and B, um, if it is kind of a basic part of our nature, spirituality at least, then what does the, the, the um, supposed decline mean? And, and, and then I started to discover, well, yeah, it's true that religion's in decline, if you think of it in a very traditional sense of church membership. Um, but there's a lot of, you know, what people might call non-rational, you know, spiritual, borderline supernatural beliefs and interests that are increasing at the same time that traditional religion's declining. And so the book really kind of gets into that, like why are um, what is it about the, the, the human need for meaning in life? What is it about the co you know the cognitive landscape of meaning making, and, and that connects to the, these changes in society of declining religiosity, but also increasing um, belief and interest in alternative spiritual life practices and beliefs. Yeah, I mean, I you know, this is almost a cliche thought at this point, but obviously, wokeness is a form of sublimated, in my opinion, Calvinistic Protestantism, and like you can map out mainline Protestant church attendance, and for those who aren't familiar with the term, mainline means like the big churches, like you know, whatever the Anglicans are called in the U.S., the the Episcopalians and the Methodists and the Lutherans, like the the major Protestant factions, not the evangelical factions, which have been the sort of core source of religiosity and identity in the United States, their church attendance rates, from my understanding, have been absolutely plunging over the past few years. But, I, you know, I'm, I'm willing to bet that if you did, like, a, a mashup of, like, the mainline church attendance rate and the number of times that people search for, like, racial or social justice, you would literally see this inverted plot in which one takes off but the other goes down. So, I, you know, I, I, it's a crude, non-academic theory, of course, but it's like I have this theory of the conservation of religion that religion is never really created or destroyed. It just changes form. And so I, I, I like I, I guess I agree with you that I, I don't I don't think humans can stop being religious. And by religious, I mean, in like the Walter Benjamin formulation, which is religion is some hidden order towards which you think human society should converge. Right. And towards which you yeah. kind of m m help make happen either in the physical world or in your own moral life. Um, so and anyhow, just to say, I guess. I agree with you, and it seems like anecdotal evidence would would also agree with you. Yeah, and there, you know, if you look across lots of different, you know, lots of different survey data, not just in the United States, but also in Canada and Europe, Western Europe, you will you will see that you know the the decline in traditional r religious identity and participation um, is inversely correlated with with all sorts of you know um, beliefs and other things. Not just, you know, so I'm interested in the wokeness thing, and I would like to hear, hear more about that, because I, I, I tend to agree that I didn't really, when I was working on the book, I, you know, I chose not to go in, in that direction, because it was just so, there, uh, you know, I already had so much data and so much content just focused on all the, you know, all these other kind of new age beliefs and alternative spiritual practices that people are into. Uh, I just didn't go into, like, the, the, the political realm. But I do agree with you, and that's even, you know, as you suggest, I think that's even accelerated a lot more in 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 the last I don't know five or so years. Yeah, I mean, I, I, this is hardly an original thought on my part. I mean, uh, the reference book that I often cite is um, Joseph uh, Bottoms Bottoms with a 
you on the second vowel, uh, an anxious age, which is about how, um, you know, again, mainline, mainline Protestant thought, the sort of wasps that used to exist as this sort of preponderant force in American society and have kind of evaporated into the background. Their religious thought never really went away. And again, it, it morphed into the, you know, I, I hate to cite such a, such a stereotype, but it, it's actually what he opens the book with. What we would now call a Karen, right? <laughs> the sort of, you know, the sort of middle-aged woman. I mean, William Burroughs had an even less flattering term for them. You know, the nice church-going women with mean, pinched, bitter, evil faces, right? That's that's who we're talking about, right? Who are very church-going, have a very rigid view of the world, and are always pursuing some cause or another, often for the good, right? If we, it's funny because. Again, now we associate social progressivism with the left, but if you look at historically with the temperance movement, the suffrage movement, the abolition movement, the, there were typically religious movements from the from the right, if anything, or at least from the most religious elements of society that would pursue these social justice goals. And so again, the, the, the or even the civil rights movement in the 60s was was a church-organized group, right? But as, as that church attendance has gone away, that's no longer the framing of it, and instead you have it enshrined in, you know, DEI initiatives and HR people and corporations <laughs> who have turned those corporations into a different sort of church. Obviously, I'm editorializing a little bit here, Clay. Maybe you don't. I'm not to imply that you're agreeing with my with my diagnosis here, but that's uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I largely, I, I think I largely agree. And, and I mean, there are philosophers like John Gray, you know, wrote right. seven heads of atheists that get into the you know the idea that a lot of a lot of what people uh, you kind of explicitly think. That they're doing as secular humanism is really still drawing heavily on Christianity, and these cultural influences don't just disappear, um, even though you know people slap new labels on them or you know, try very very hard to distance. Their, yeah, you know, themselves from them. I, I mean, I, I want to repeat your your recommendation, which is uh, John Gray's the seven seven types or seven kinds of atheists or something. That um, John Gray is a, a great writer. I think he's not nearly as well known in the U.S as he should be, but he's a, I find him to be a wonderful writer. He's an academic philosopher turned author. And yeah, the seven types of atheism kind of, he himself is an atheist, but he takes a very, a very acidic take <laughs> to, mo- to modern, well, to all forms of, a- of contemporary atheism. I mean, he, had, he identifies seven types. And the, the one thing about his book, and I would, I would pose to you this question because you've studied the, the topic so much. Um, you know, at, at the end of it, if you remember, he's like, okay, these are the seven types of atheists that I've basically been spent 250 pages making fun of, right? And clearly, <laughs> uh, unlike the new atheists, right, which, you know, to quote Hitchens' book title, God is not great, thought religion was always and everywhere an, a, a negative evil phenomenon. On the contrary, he, he cites that it's actually necessary for much of human life. But then he kind of confesses that at the end, he can't kind of push himself to believe, right? Particularly, I think Christianity requires a level of sort of personal personal faith that, you know, it's hard to kind of just fake <laughs> or just muster. Yeah. And yeah. so I'm curious if you've thought about either in your own personal life or academic life, like what do you, what do, you do with that with people who are sort of circumspect and thoughtful enough to understand that some some element of like rigid metaphysical belief is required in society, but can't actually muster the gas to kind of believe in it themselves. Yeah. What, what, what do you think about that? No, I'm, gl- I'm glad you brought that up. Because I've thought about that a lot. And I mean, so it is a challenge in the, the Western uh, kind of individualistic world, like the, the point you're making where our view of religion or a lot of beliefs, to be honest, is that we have to individually um, internalize them and endorse them. And, and, a lot, and it has to align with 
you know, our, our personalities. And, you know, there, you, you could take another perspective, which is a, a broader, you know, more um, kind of collective perspective, which is the recognition that, that, you can, that you can simultaneously say this is good for society or there's lots of benefits to society. And society is made up of different types of people with different personalities. And some people just are low on a spiritual orientation of, you know, they're just, they're not well wired for it, for, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it. But that, but if that, that, does that mean they should feel excluded from it? Is it, or is it, would it be better if, if we were able to say, hey, you know, we're all part of this tradition. Some of us are really good at it. Some of us have a very high spiritual orientation. Those people are going to more likely be, they're going to select professions where, you know, they can draw on those talents um, and roles. Um, but is there still something that the small percentage of people who are very systemizing and just, like you said, just can't quite bring on board? Is there still a place for them in a broad um, cultural, um, religious framework? And yeah, in the West, particularly the U.S., um, we, we just don't do this. I had this experience in um, in England um, when we lived in England, and the kids, you know, we were putting our kids in school, and as church, you know, they don't have separation of church and state like we do in the U.S. They're a very secular society, of course, but our kids went to church in England school. And I remember when I saw the application for General Oldham in school, they were there was a place that said religion. Now I'm an American, um, and so I was like, that's not really any of your business. <laughs> Um, that's that's a personal thing. This is a public school, and you know I, that was my that, that was my thinking. And like, no, 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 you you put that on there. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to put that on there. And you know, I was like, some and you know, I wasn't speaking for myself, but I was just trying to make a point. Like, some people don't have a religion. And like, no, 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 everyone has a religion. And we were just talking past each other because that what they really meant is like, where are your people? Where where are you from? Like, what's your background? What's your history? You know, are you are you are you Christian? Are you Muslim? Are you you know what? And you know, I had friends in France that was the same thing. They were I knew that they were very very non-religious, but they were raising their kids Catholic. And I was like, what's that about? Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think it's a very American thing to be like, well, I have to endorse it. It's a private matter, and in, in, um, that you know, it'd be interesting to to think about. I guess perhaps other other, other ways of, of doing that. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's weird, right? Like, in the UK I'm not terribly familiar with, but the, the sort of European continent and France and Spain I'm a little bit more familiar with. And there, you know, the notions of secularism or laicite are, are different, right? In the US, it's like freedom of religion in, in some sense, while in, in, in much of the European continent, it's freedom from religion, right? Their notions of secularism mm-hmm. are, to, are to sort of delete religion from the public space. And in fact, it, it would be considered offensive or, in fact, even illegal to have religious i mean in spain much less so but in, in france definitely if you show up with a cross or a, you know there's a whole hijab controversy in in france um but yeah, yeah it's yeah. but you know it, it I, again to, to the your point about like people being systematizing and can't deal with religion it's you know it's basically what they're saying it's like well i'm t- i'm too smart for religion but then of course they go believe in some other thing that you know that seems as as random, frankly, or, you know, it's like, <laughs> like yeah. you know, the, the joke that like Myers-Briggs personality tests are like for people who think they're too smart for astrology, right? It's like, it's a similar yeah. thing that instead they go to Burning Man, have a keto diet and then engage in some little, you know, self-help thing that sounds very much like some proselytizing religion. Um, but, you know, and I, you know, in, in my case, obviously, as I think most listeners probably know, 
you know, my solution to this problem, to, to filling the God-shaped hole at the heart of liberalism, uh, was Judaism, which I think, again, is different than Christianity for a bunch of reasons, um, obviously. But what, one of them is that the personal profession of faith is kind of like not a necessary step. Like, I, I'm just finishing, you have to write all these essays. You have to write like a thesis to convert to Judaism. So I'm, writing my, my, I'm writing my Jew thesis, as it were, and, you know, a lot of the, they ask you lots of questions, and there's, there's not a single one about your faith. They don't even ask if you believe in God. They don't care. It's irrelevant. All that matters is your practice. How are you living as a Jew in the world, and what does that mean to you and your family? That's what matters. The personal relationship just doesn't even come up on the exam. <laughs> um, yeah. Which, That's a good example. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'm not saying it's necessarily better, but for those who have trouble having a personal relationship with God, and it's weird because you talk to seculars, and again, like, the exposure they've had to religion, if any, is typically Protestantism and is typically evangelical Protestantism, right? Because that's like, somehow that's like the echoes of the, of the religion in the public sphere that we see is like televangelists or, you know, some yeah, politician yeah. in the South who makes like a big deal about being evangelical or whatever. And it's unfortunate because that becomes the, their mental pattern for what religion needs to mean. And again, in, at least in the Judaic examples, and I'm sure you could find lots of other examples, like it's not about that kind of at all, um, really. Yeah. Yeah. No, the reason I said it's a good example because I, I think it illustrates that there are other <laughs> there are other ways of doing things than, than than like than like you just pointed out this kind of character you know characterization of of religion that you know honestly I think our media does a bad job of journalism on religion it's not typically not not good with with some exceptions but yeah it's typically framed as you have to you have to like totally divorce yourself from rational reality and you know be a fanatic and from my experience that's that's really just not true there's you know just like i said there's a lot of variability in personalities i mean there's all sorts of different people who are have different types of like religious commitment spiritual practices and it varies from person to person whether it's more what really matters to them is the, the kind of mindfulness element the ritual element or whether it's really the, the, the community element the, the service element um, or you know, or the you know the more intellectual component of the mystery, the asking the big questions, the search. Um, so there's some people that are very religious and they need high certainty, right? They want it, they want they want a dogma, and there are other people that it's more of a it's more of a quest, it's more of a journey, and it's a, it's a it's a humility of I don't have all the answers, you know, I'm just one person, I'm just this tiny speck trying to figure things out, and. You know, so there's there's lots of variety of, of religious experience and practice, but um, you're right. We don't get a lot of. I don't think that's um, taught or acknowledged well in, in, in kind of mainstream culture. I mean, the, the other thing again, if you mentioned the secular, the first thing is like, well, do you believe in God? And the second one is they assume that you somehow don't believe in empirical science, right? And again, that's another legacy from yeah. the evangelicals who think the Bible makes claims about um, metaphysics. When 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 an actual and, and here's where. You need to have a certain intellectual discipline, right? You need to, as the philosophers, you know, distinguish between the empirical side of the world and the metaphysical side of the world, right? That goes beyond the physics of everyday life. And that's where religion lives, right? And I think most yeah. smart, most smart, you know, Catholic or, or Jewish theologians, who are the ones that I'm more familiar with, would, would very cleanly make that break and make no claims about the empirical world whatsoever at all, right? And instead, you realize that, again, going back to things like, 
you know, the Torah or the Talmud. These are basically moral philosophies that have been debated for millennia and that, you know, follow along some religious line and in the case of Judaism, some sort of tribal ethnic line as well. But basically, it's just a very long conversation that that group has been having with itself about the various aspects of life. And, you know, there's always a passage in the Talmud that you can cite about whatever it is, like even the most weird, like I often post joke tweets about like, Hey, can, you know, if you, if I zoom in to the prayer meeting, does that count as part of the minion? Cause you need a minimum of 10 Jews. And then someone from Chabad, which is this Orthodox uh, movement that I, I know a few of them will chime in with the answer and the, and the Talmud citation completely unironically and like, Oh yeah, well actually, no, it isn't, but you, this and that and the other thing. And again, it's just, it's a way of reasoning about the non-empirical questions of life without otherwise just being kind of stuck there and just making it up as you go along, which, frankly, seems like what we do in, in our society because we've kind of lost the moral script. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. It's a, and it's a way of living a more complete life. I mean, in the sense of, if you, it, again, this gets back to sort of the cognitive psychology, motivational psychology component, but there's a lot about spiritual and social life. I mean, those, those things are very, very, very correlated. They rely on very similar cognitive processes and part uh, and, and probably um, neurological structures um, that when you experience awe when you experience love when you are being creative when when you're using more intuitive cognitive processes which are you know in, in the moment moment to moment antagonistic to rational processes so you, you, you just switch to a different way of thinking when you're having these existential kind of experiences and these like deeply social, deeply experiences, they rely heavily on this type of social cognition. And if you try to shut yourself off to it, um, you you know, first of all, most people who think they are, I just, I just don't, I, I think that's not true. I mean, I think the percentage, uh, even though atheists are only like a small percentage of the population in the U.S., and I think they're actually much smaller than the self-identified atheists because I think a lot of atheists, kind of like you were hinting at earlier, aren't really atheists. Um, and, you know, they um, they just they identify as atheists. Um, but I, I, I think there's very, very few people that have an almost robotic existence. Um, and, and you just miss out on, I think if you just try to shut yourself off from that type of stuff, then you're missing out on, on you know, a fuller, more complete life. And that's not advocating for any particular religious tradition or any at all. It's just saying that there's something about um, the spiritual nature of human existence that is part of what makes, I think, what's part of what makes civilizations flourish. So it's part of what inspires people to, to, to want to be part of something transcendent, to work on projects that extend beyond the self and beyond their time on this planet. It, you know, it's very much part of what, 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 um, has elevated us above organi- other organi- organisms and allowed us to, you know, dominate the planet. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, thought. yeah, yeah. I mean, perhaps the, the preeminent example of that sort of rationalist or uber cold take is, well, I mean, the so-called rationalists who engage in effective altruism, which I think is, which I actually like, by the way, I know a lot of people kind of drag on them, but they're, you know, they're, yeah, they take rationalism to the extreme, right? Which, you know, what seculars often resort to is like utilitarianism, which is that sort of 
Benthamite, oh, let's add up the pluses and the minuses, and it's kind of ethics by Excel spreadsheet. And at the end of the day, we do the maximum good for the maximum number of people. And of course, the problem is, for starters, you can't necessarily know ahead of time what is long-term good with all the positive and negative externalities of a given policy. And two, even if you did, like the math doesn't always work out to your actual satisfaction. So for example, I mean, and this is like ethics 101 class, right? But, you know, you you could work out the math or set someone up in in terms of saying, oh, do you believe in organ donation and things like that? It's like, okay, well, how about we actually just harvest organs from newborns? And so long as we save more than one person or, you know, more than the people that we kill by doing so, this is a moral course of action. Do you agree or don't? And then suddenly it's like, aha. And you realize that in fact, there's like a numerical infinity that goes, needs to go into that Expel spreadsheet. And that numerical in, infinity is, in my opinion, the, you know, the quest of ethics, or at least deontology itself, which is, well, what are the principles by which you, le- you live your life that mean that you can't math your way around it, right? Um, mm-hmm. So anyhow, that's a, that, I, I just blabbed a lot there. But <laughs> that, I'm, just, I'm summarizing lots of conversations and, and loud debates late into the night after many cups of wine that usually end up in that spot and... If you're not willing to accept a certain, a certain moral principle or point at a certain document, I think people just sort of reject, reject the mere notion of, of deontological ethics. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's something else that I think is, is interesting about this, this distinction is, you know, and I, uh, I'll make this point about academia, is a person who accepts their religious nature and, you know, channels it into a structure, a belief system, um, a, you know, a group, um, they're able to, and then I'm generalizing, but they're able to compartmentalize in the sense of they know when they're going to church on Sunday, they're doing something different than when they're going into their science laboratory on Monday morning. And I think one of the problems we have in academia, you know, some of the, some of the, the, the woke stuff you were talking about as being religious-like, is these people don't realize that's what they're doing. They, they don't realize they're confusing um, their kind of empirically minded um, work with their more intuitive social kind of ideologies. And so in a lot of ways, like not, not accepting your human nature and then trying to figure out how to best partition it in such a way to where you get the most out of the different aspects of your personality but the spiritual side and the more rational empirical side, then you're kind of doing both poorly. <laughs> um, it, it, you know, is, is my thought on it at least. Yeah, I mean, I think the separation of of, of spiritual or metaphysical life and then the, the practicalities of real life, be they science or technology or just like working your job, is an important one. I um, a couple of weeks ago, I, I interviewed another academic professor, Carolyn Chen, at at Berkeley. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her work, but she um, she wrote a book called um, Work, Pray, Code. And she's sort of a, a sociologist of the workplace, right? In the sense of she was sort of examining Silicon Valley, you know, work, you know, culture and sort of morality around it. And, you know, and, and I made it obviously with nowhere near the level of, of rigor of, of, of Carolyn, some of these observations in my own memoir of like Facebook Live, Chaos Monkeys. But like, you know, these startups, or even Keith Raboy has said, every successful startup is a cult. And that's, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? It's not necessarily like a Jonestown cult. It's just a cult in the sense of <laughs> you have some doctrine of belief, 
you have some founding principles, you have like a group quest, you have, you know, an enlightened leader or set of leaders, and then you live within this value system and try to produce something in the world. Um, perhaps not unlike the first years of Islam, for example, which were busily concerned with spreading the word of, of Muhammad, you know, in, in every direction. And so, I, I, you know, it, and it's funny, one thing she observed was that those who were most immune to the sort of corporate cult were those who had their own religiosity, those who actually were able to check out on Friday and then go to church or shul or whatever of the weekend and then check back in, but it didn't consume their lives. And those who were most most sucked in, actually, it's funny, most sucked into the corporate cult were those who had had a religion growing up, had lost it, and then had refound it in the corporate environment, right? That, those, were the, those were the most culty people, um, which, again, I found, I found very interesting. But, yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, and yeah, no, like in, I think it's the Baylor survey. Baylor does some, or they used to do some surveys on this, and you know they found that the people who attended church, re, you know, regularly, um, were the least likely to, you know, have paranormal beliefs. Which again, it speaks to that issue. It's not the case that rejecting, explicitly rejecting religion somehow, you know, makes you magically <laughs> immune from all sorts of superstitions and paranormal supernatural beliefs. Um, it's just, you're just rejecting one in particular. Um, and so I think people are overconfident in, in their, in, you know, they imagine themselves as being purely ra- rational organisms that make every decision based on the weighting evidence, like you said in your, in your spreadsheet example, when there's just very little reason very, and very little evidence to think that that characterizes the vast majority of humans living on this planet. Right, right. And, and you open your book... Um, with a kind of a good example of it in which you're at a swim meet and they're watching like a football game or something in the locker room aside from the swim meet and some little girl expresses, I think, the possibility the team might lose and suddenly she had committed obviously a a taboo transgression and had invoked the evil spirits that might have made, I forget it was either the swim team or the, the team playing on the TV actually lose and you cited how like grown adults who, you know, pay mortgages and have jobs, nobody sat there and guffawed at the guy suggesting that the little girl, by, by mere virtue of saying a thing, would somehow impact the game happening thousands of miles away. And yet, that's, that's exactly the superstition that everyone collectively had. Yeah, for sure. Like, if you, if you want to see, if you want to see, like, grown men, like, professional, um, you know, serious men, like, um, if you want to see their superstitions come out, like, um, threaten their, their sports superstitions. <laughs> well, I mean, this, this would even happen in science labs. Like I, so I, I was for too long a PhD student in experimental physics at Berkeley that I eventually dropped out of, but, um, you know, spent m- many years in the bowels of Berkeley physics buildings trying to make a lot of cantankerous and hack together equipment work. And it's amazing how quickly superstitions would take over even that, like literally the most rational people who in theory are trying to bend nature to their will <laughs> to figure out something Sorry. new about a person. It's like, oh, no, no, the, uh, you know, the, you know, the, the, the low pressure pump that runs the dilution refrigerator. It can only be started in this sequence and run on these times okay. with this thing. Otherwise, it fucks up everything. And then, you know, and often, and often it wasn't quite clear this was like an empirical conclusion. Um, and, in, you know, and if you ask, like, well, but are, are you sure? But no one will question. It became the sort of reigning belief. And anyway, it was, I mean, these are micro examples, obviously. Like, nobody was sitting, no. there, was sitting there worshiping the dilution refrigerator pump or anything as a god. But it's intriguing how that same line of thinking exists in residual form, even in the most sort of educated and presumably smart people. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's pretty hilarious. I mean, and, you know, and also I'll say that 
I think a, a common response to a lot of this is is sort of a negative view, which is yeah, this 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 reveals a flaw in human cognition. And you know, I don't. Of course, we can make errors, and there can be flaws, and this can go go badly. But but another way of thinking about it, which is this actually reveals something that's often quite powerful and important about and to the success of our species, which we're very agency oriented. We, we, we want things to happen for a reason. We want things to be, um, you know, purpose focused. And so if we exaggerate or overpopulate the world with, 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 with forces and things that, you know, seem a little bit magical at some time, it might actually um, oftentimes just reflect our desire to impose order, uh, you know, to, you know, to live with some kind of direction and purpose. And, and I, th- I think that's a, um, that's part of our success, actually. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the interesting things. I mean, it's, and it's, once you start seeing it, you can't stop seeing it, right? The fact that the, that the universe has some moral arc and some moral causality to it, like person does good thing gets rewarded, person does bad thing gets punished. Like that is just such a deep wiring in the, in the human mind that again, it, like, it, like literally once you, once you see it, you can't stop seeing it. Like whether it be a tweet about the Ukraine situation or the fate of some canceled person or literally any goddamn thing on Twitter, it's always placed within some moral framework. And in fact, if you yeah. were to if you were to extract it from a moral framework or analyze it in an amoral or you know, and by amoral I mean strictly speaking, just with morality just deleted from it, you would be accused of like either socio- sociopathy or insensitivity or something. Um, that's how germane it is to our own thinking. And it I, again, on the one hand, I think it's good in the sense that otherwise life becomes this solipsistic nihilistic nightmare <laughs> that nobody actually wants to live in but on the other it's like man can we just like ease up on the fairy tales occasionally <laughs> can we just not tell each other little morality plays and think the world actually works this way because in my experience at least by and large and i'm not actually the most needless person in the world it, it doesn't quite work in these simple little moral fairy tales um but anyhow, I yeah, I don't know where I don't know quite know where to go with that. Other than to say that if we are to apply our moral reasoning, it should at least be sort of consistent and deductive in the sense of like extending from first principles in some way, rather than kind of inductive and empirical. And in my opinion, you know, the utilitarian mess in which we're kind of always trying to make it up as we go along. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know, Clay. How do you how do you how do you resolve moral conflicts in in your own life? Oh, I don't know. I listen to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> See that? I'm sure she she's probably in the room, and I'm sure you got points for that. That was probably the right answer. Um, listen to your wife. Well, that's 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 good. Okay. Um, interesting. I mean, I you know to answer the question myself, how do I answer the question? I don't know. I would probably I would probably dive into the the Torah, the Talmud, or some aspect of Jewish literature or culture, maybe, or or some other or other avenues of moral reasoning, maybe. I don't know. Hard, hard to say. Um, yeah, no, I think, you know, in all seriousness, like, yeah, I think these are, yeah, we do obviously deliberately dig into things, but, you know, going back to some of the previous points, you know, we don't exist, you know, in, in the absence of, of cultural training. And even if people are growing up secular, a lot of, a lot of the moral frameworks they have are, you know, clearly inherited from, from religious traditions from the past and, and also from, you know, from an evolutionary psychological perspective, you know, there's, there's a view of, uh, uh, there's a number of concepts that, you know, we think are, 
are just kind of wired into being good, you know, it's beneficial to, to engage in reciprocity. You know, it's, it's beneficial to help people, um, to get people to, benefit, to have some generosity of spirit. Um, these things um, bring, they, they bind people to communities, um, which help each other thrive. As an individual, the human animal is not particularly intimidating organism. It's our capacity, you know, a lot of our brain power is allocated towards um, collaboration, towards uniting ourselves around common causes and, you know, specializing, figuring out what we're good at, what we're not good at, organizing ourselves and working together um, with a certain level of, of trade and um, companionship and cooperation and, and positive competitiveness, too. And so, I, you know, I think that those are, you know, there's an evolutionary story there as well. Well, so so that, that that raises an interesting question. I mean, what, not, not to doubt that I yeah that there's some you know that morality is like an epigenetic or extragenetic form of adaptation. I I, I believe it is. Um, but it, it, w- one thing that raises though, right? When, whenever you raise the evolutionary banner, it, it 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 presupposes that there's a level of universalism to it, right? That humans are the same everywhere, and that they have the same moral themes in their life, and that ultimately they're going to arrive at the same moral conclusions, and I, I, and I'm sure that's true at a certain level, certainly at the level you're talking of like, oh, trying to find meaning in their life and tribe and belonging. That's true. But again, I, the details of how they actually try to achieve that, I think, varies a lot. And, and again, even between as someone who's apostatized and gone from Christianity to Judaism, even between those religions, one of which is an offshoot of the other. Right. And they're often even used together, Judeo-Christian or whatever. I still think there's actually pretty serious differences in them. And and of course, if we were to expand to other religions that I frankly know a lot less about, like Islam or Buddhism, that, you know, that delta would be even bigger, right? So how much of this actually is universal? Because again, like just to cite the example that I'm familiar with of Catholicism and Judaism, there are notions of, say, um, social justice and morality and violence are, are very different. Like you could, you could present a moral case and the Jew would say one thing and the Catholic another. Um, so how universal do you think these beliefs are? Um, yeah, well... Yeah, even more than that, they're you know they they're not they don't only vary across space; they vary across time within the same yeah. religion yes. or within yes. the same culture, right? So they're not even um, you know what people think of today as the you know not to pick on the woke stuff again, but what people think of today as violent violence would not be considered violence not that not that long ago. Um, so yeah, I think you're right. I, I think the the core inclinations that the, the the, you know, the deeper down, lower level fundamentals are relatively universal and the same that humans across the world generally have, you know, pretty much the same <laughs> brains, um, you know, obviously with individual variability. Um, but yeah, how these things are expressed is a function uh, of culture and culture is a function of all sorts of um, pressures and forces and, you know, that, that a society faces at any given time. So... Um, so yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's obviously sounds like an easy answer, but, but clearly it's both. But I, I definitely don't take the blank slate approach that all of this is just totally fabricated from social life. I mean, clearly it's built on top of, um, on top of biological structures. Right, right. I mean, and the, but then the problem is if if you if you start going down the the blank slate is wrong direction, then you get into things like oh genetics, which is like, a, and the moment you say that, as as Catherine Page Harden discovered, you're like a step away from eugenics in the conversation. And then even if you stay at the anthropological level, I 
Little known fact, one of my undergraduate degrees is in anthropology, actually, and I did an undergrad mm -hmm. thesis in, in cultural anthropology, so I, I did a lot of reading on, on social and cultural anthropology, which was interesting. Um, but even there, right, like, and it's funny, I wonder how much of that is even taught these days. I'm, I'm guessing the vibe inside universities is very different. But you would read these ethnographies that weren't necessarily judgy, right? But they were definitely not embarking on some social justice activism when they were describing the, the Yanomamo natives of the Amazon, for example, or, you know, whatever strange, you know, whatever people, non-Western culture anthropology decided to focus on. That, you know, it was, they were kind of like a bug under a microscope, right? And, um, and if you started asking questions like, well, why is it the West that's kind of sizing up the world's cultures, right? Um, then you could rapidly go into a spiral of, you know, undermining the entire venture, I guess. Um, anyhow, it's a, it's a hard thing to talk about without getting yourself canceled, Clay, as I'm sure you know, <laughs> probably better than I do. <laughs> yeah, that, and that's weird because that's so, that's so recent. I mean, I've been in academia for, I guess, close to 20 years. And certainly when I was working on my PhD, it wasn't, at least in psychology, sociology was already, I guess, quite slight. But at least in psychology, it wasn't controversial at all. To, you know, it's just... The idea was that psychology was based, you know, the, the bottom of psychology was evolutionary biology. Like, that was the starting point. That wasn't the, you know, that wasn't the end point. You know, but the idea is you start there. You have to understand human nature first, and then you start to understand how that, you start to explore how that interacts with, with, with social and cultural forces. And that wasn't a controversial position right. that I was aware of. But you're right. I think it is now or you know some people you know obviously there are still people that i mean i'm generalizing there are still people that do that work um but it definitely is becoming more controversial and you definitely have to be a lot more i guess you don't have to be um people choose to be a lot more careful about it or just avoid the topic entirely because their reputation and social life and careers and everything are more important to them than, than fighting with these people do you do you have tenure, Clay? Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. A, yeah, I'm a full professor. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, that's oh, yeah. that's that's quite a bit of freedom. And I mean, I, if you don't want to talk about it, we can totally switch topics. But I mean, do you feel the tone internally in academia has changed such that even tenured faculty has to be careful about what they say or or what they study? Yeah. So I would rephrase, rephrase it slightly, and you know, I know you, you didn't mean this, but I I, I don't like it when I actually don't like that have to when people say have to be i mean all this is a choice to be honest and yeah i get it it's a difficult choice um but pe you know you, you hear people say things like well you're not allowed to talk about this you're not allowed to do that and i'm like well no you're allowed to you, you're just taking on certain social and professional risks i get i get there's a strong incentive not to um but but i wish people were were braver about that i don't even like using the word brave i mean that's not real bravery. <laughs> like you're you're not going running into like a burning building. Um, but yeah, no. So you know, not to avoid the question, but but yeah, no. Things that academia has definitely, definitely, definitely changed. I mean, it is becoming a lot more religious-like. You know, um, like you, like you're pointing out at the beginning, it's it's become the 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 social justice stuff, and not you know, not to to, to be clear, like. I like diversity. I want to live in a society that's dynamic and diverse and interesting and where this, you know, everyone has a fair shot and, you know, I'm against racism and sexism and, and all of that. But a lot of what's happening 
on our campuses seems pretty far removed and, and sometimes even antagonistic to those goals, I think. And, and, the, and the privileging of an ideology over a real careful examination of what it, what's actually going to help um, continue the cause of progress, I think. Um, and so, yeah, it's definitely changed in the, in the almost, you know, in the nearly 20 years that I've been in academia. And I know people said it changed well before then, but I can only testify to my, my time. And, and, and during my time, it's definitely become a lot more, a lot more ideological, a lot more, uh, I mean, academia is, you know, I, it's always been kind of liberal since I've been in it, but a lot more of like far left stuff, authoritarian, you know, dogmatic people afraid, people super sensitive, extremely bureaucratic, um, and all that stuff is has definitely gotten worse. You know, you mentioned living in a diverse society, and so of course, my vision of that of 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 global cosmopolitan elite culture is of course craft beer, and so I'm checking out the craft <laughs> beer setup in Fargo, North Dakota, and you seem to be pretty well set up, I have to say. Yeah, Far- Fargo yeah. is definitely a blue a blue town. Um, given the, the craft beer density, it seems. Yeah, our craft beer situation is, is good. And, you know, when I've been here 15 years, I've been in Fargo 15 years, and it's just getting, it's just getting better and better in, in terms of the number of breweries and the diversity of breweries. And, and I, I, I like beer, so it makes that make me happy. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think Lenny Bruce had a joke that you can't be considered a serious nation unless you have an airline and a beer. Like those two things, <laughs> the ability to have enough clean drinking water, enough access to like you know grains, and then enough disposable income to actually entertain bars, and then the logistical ability to actually keep planes in the sky. Like those are the two critical things to be. If you're not you're not a nation without, and I would just up the stakes a little bit to to up it to craft beer. You can, unless you can make a decent IPA, it's not quite clear you should get a seat on on the UN. I think. If any country can't just produce that, then I'm sorry. You might just have to, you might just have to merge with your neighboring country until you learn how to make a proper IPA. I might get, I might get canceled for that view. But I, I don't think there's anti-beer supremacy um, movement these days. Um, can can, can yeah. you be? Can, are you cancelable? I, I, no, no. I, well, I, no. I think I'm, I'm immune now. It's like getting COVID. You're, you're actually immune for a number of months, depending on how good your antibodies are. I, I got canceled. I got canceled, and I think. You know, now cancellation, I mean, if you don't get canceled, are you even trying really? Like, I, you know, what are you really doing if it's like, <laughs> right, 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 right. I mean, if it's like becoming a major, you know, it's like becoming a major tech entrepreneur and not having an antitrust investigation. I mean, are, are you even a, like, what are you even doing if you don't get hauled in front of Congress, right? It's the same thing with people in media. If you don't have at least one cancellation scandal, you're just not, you're just not trying hard enough. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I- yeah. It's weird because I used to, you know, so I've always been a, an advocate for tenure. And the reason I was an advocate for tenure was not out of self-interest so much as I, as a hetero, as a more heterodox thinker, I thought, well, if, if the academy could completely purge anyone right of far left, <laughs> they probably would. And so tenure protect, protects the heterodox thinkers. But I'm not, you know, it's not really that's decreasingly the case. And so it's, it's the, the downside of tenure is it protects dead weight, right? That protects people who aren't really, you know, who've kind of quit producing. And, but the trade-off seems kind of worth it if it was, well, it's also protect, protecting academic freedom and ideas. And so, yeah, you have a few professors that 
really aren't doing anything and they're kind of a drain, but you're protecting all these really interesting professors that are speaking out and that are doing bold and creative and curious research and not afraid to challenge the status quo. But I think that's really changing and it's, it's, it's making me more skeptical of, uh, of tenure. I'm sure I'm missing some other, um, some other qualities of, of tenure, but I, um, but for the, like you were saying, I'm not sure that people are really speaking out. And I know there are there are a lot of professors who, behind closed doors, will criticize this woke stuff. Um, and will say this isn't a, a lot of liberal professors will say this isn't the liberalism that I signed up for when I got into academia 20 or 30 years ago. Um, but they're not going to say that stuff, uh, you know, out loud. And so they're kind of like, well, what's tenure doing? Well, uh, again, getting back to your thing about like, uh, you know, actions have consequences. That's true. But even if you don't necessarily get fired and you retain, you know, your academic paycheck, the, the fact of the fact of the matter, you get ostracized, right? The Romans thought that, yeah. or maybe it was the Greeks, thought that exile was basically equivalent to execution, right? The, the thought that you're literally pushed yeah. out, particularly in an age when if you left your town and your connections, your, you know, your life was really over. There was no, there was no work from home, right? In the classical <laughs> era, right? That that was just as bad. And so I think that's what people, I mean, you're right that this is not, this is not some autocratic regime. We're not living under Stalin. No one goes to a gulag. Like none of that happens. So it's a very soft, if there is a tyranny, it's a very soft ideological tyranny. But I think that's enough in our relatively comfortable age to actually dissuade uh, most people from, you know, doing anything. Yeah. So, no, that's a know. good point. And it's also, it's also the case that, 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 that scientists, you know, at least in the, in the science academic world, to, to, a lot of times we're really focused on funding our laboratories, which means writing grants. You know, we want our graduate students to get jobs. You know, we're dealing with all this stuff. And so I think in addition to social ostracism, which I, you're 100% right about that, people, you know, people want to have friends. Academics especially need to have friends because we're these weird people that move around and leave our, you know, leave our homes and just go where the work is. And so, oftentimes your colleagues are the, only, you know, you're not from that community, and so your colleagues are, you know, the best, the closest thing you have to family. And so, you know, the stakes are even higher socially. But in addition to that, it's like it's just a real pain to deal with people filing complaints against you, everyone mad at you, and you're like, I'm really trying to run a, a, a productive laboratory and get right. grants and mentor students and like people just so i think a lot of times people are just making the calculation like it's, if this isn't really directly relevant to my specific line of research i'm just going to avoid this so i can just get about my you know go about doing my job and and that's what happens with a lot of the really really good academics of course it's you know unfortunately a lot of academics who aren't particularly productive who aren't doing those things, they have the time to insert themselves on committees and to advance their ideologies and do things. And so they end up kind of having a lot of influence, I think, because the most productive scientists are too busy running their, their research laboratories, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I get it. Um, well, okay. Um, hmm. Well, Clay, I, it's funny. I, I wanted to get, I know you had pieces on nostalgia and patriotism and stuff that I, that I read before this, but somehow between the, the state of academia and the state of, you know, religion and metaphysics, we managed to fill the hour. Um, is there anything else uh, you want to tell pull request viewers if there's like a, you know, a secret book that's coming out in a few months or something else? Or how, how should they read more about your work if they, if they want to? Um, 
No, no secret, no secret book. I, I am working on a new nostalgia book. I don't, that'll, it'll be a while. Uh, I'm behind on it. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, I have a website, it's just playwritelets.com and you can see there, I, you know, I have a lot of my work, a lot of the different types of research I'm doing and yeah, nothing, um, nothing to report right now, but that's, and you know, I'm a research fellow at the Archbridge Institute and I, I, I'm going to be doing even more with them in, in the future. And, you know, um, so there's some announcements coming down, down, down the road for that. But if you, but some of the reports I sent you, like on, on patriotism and progress, and um, the um, existential agency in America, like they can find those things, um, you know, at the at the Archbridge Institute website and um, at, at my website, clairetlet.com. And also, one last thing I'll say is um, psychologyofprogress.org is another website that that I run and. It's where a lot of this work, they can find a lot of this work too, which I'm, I'm very interested in, in, in the progress studies movement, which has largely neglected human psychology, but of course progress is, is powered by people. So I'm, so I'm trying to do work in this space of what is it about, um, how, how do we get people to believe in the future? How do we get, you know, what motivates people? What makes them hopeful? What makes them optimistic? What makes them want to make the world a better place? And what are some of the psychological characteristics that help um, sustain and accelerate um, human progress? So um, psychologyprogress.org is another, is another place they can, they can go if they want to see some more work. Cool. And if the listeners missed any of that, the good news is your, your name is so unique, you actually have your Twitter handle and it's SEO proof. Everyone, Clay Rutledge, and you go straight to, straight to your stuff. Um, um, it's it's definitely a, it's a name I can I can easily remember for some reason because it's it sounds so <laughs> classical it's it somehow it sounds like it sounds like a British explorer who discovered the source of some river or something in Asia and you know Sir Clay Rut, <laughs> say Clare Rutledge or like you know one of those statues when you're passing um, you know in London and it's someone you know who was eminent at the time and it's like oh wait look at this guy and he's in his pith helmet anyway, sorry i don't know if that's a if that's a characterization you appreciate but it's it's well, it's it, what the it, name it of it it's where the name comes from it's a scottish um, english name so <laughs> right so they were right so you were in the scottish highlanders and they made a stand in uh, world war one against a german charge or something um right well Great, Clay. Uh, again, thanks for having us uh, on. Sorry we couldn't get to more of your work. Um, unfortunately, I think the social audio format isn't ideal. Or maybe I should go full Rogan and just do like five-hour podcasts. I, I don't think I actually I – have, I have it in me to, to actually have people listen to me for five hours. I don't think I'm as uh, good at interviewers as, as Joe is. But in any case, uh, thanks for coming on, Clay. And uh, everyone knows where to, where to find you if they want to tune into more of your work. Thanks so much, Antonio. It was, it was great to talk to you. And I'm always, always happy to come back to talk about some of those – other topics and yes. see if I've been canceled yet. Yeah, <laughs> it's a thing. You don't, you don't necessarily know. It's, it's, not like you, it's not like you actually get a horse's head in your bed or anything. Like there's not, there's not like a sim. Like I wish there was somebody in charge of this. I would just tell you. It would be like that's a parking ticket. Part, that's the exciting part though. You're going to live on the edge day to day. Who knows? Maybe Who knows? <laughs> every, every tweet, it could go viral. You could lose your livelihood. You don't know. It's, it's just Russian roulette every day on Twitter. Anyhow, um, okay, great, Clay. Thanks so much, and thanks, uh, pull requesters, for tuning in. Um, for those who are subs to the Substack, I've got a post coming out tomorrow that's a little bit more, you know, rumination on all the weirdness that's happened in the past month, some comments on the Rogan show. A lot of people asked me questions, what it was like, and I'll, I'll answer those tomorrow, so look for that if you're a sub. And uh, thanks again for joining us, and thanks, Clay.